Well, I, I think I'd just like to open it up to, to more questions. What, what are the things that, that you're wondering about? Yeah. I just had a question on something that you said about the protagonist, because I'm working on something that's got two protagonists, mm -hmm. and you want them to be equal. It's a man and a woman. And I'm wondering if you think that's what you think about that. Is that it's a, it's a limited series, it's an eight part. Uh, what, what would the genre be, would you say? It's an action. Historical and love story. It's 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 tough to say. I mean, usually you wind up having the point of view of one character more than the other. So to give like a classic example, if you remember Moonlighting, which was kind of a procedural, it was this weird mix between a procedural and a serialized romance, like you know, interesting thing where very, two very strong characters and and there were other characters in the show, obviously. But does anybody remember them? Not so much. But you know, everybody remembers you know Bruce Willis and and um, and, and yes, thank you. And uh, except me, um, no. But so, who was the main character of that show? It's a little hard to say. Like they very both had very strong personalities, but I think she was. Like I think it was more from her perspective. So I think I think it, my experience is that one character is just always a little bit. We're seeing it a little bit more from that character's perspective. Sometimes it's very. You know, obvious. But when they're two strong characters, like House of Cards, uh, you know, Frank and his wife, like they're both very strong characters. But it's Frank's show, like you know, and and they're both brilliant actors. And like, I want to watch both of them. Like, I'll follow either one of them. They're so good. They could have their own shows. Um, but we are definitely with Frank. True Detective. Well, first off, it's an outlier, right? So you have to ask yourself. Uh, how much of a risk do you want to take? There are going to be points, you know, they say in sales that you want to eliminate points of friction. That any point of friction is a potential thing that can get in the way of a sale. At the same time, if you have no friction, that means you have such an unspecific product that no one's going to want to buy it. So what you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to choose your battles about your points of friction. What are the points of friction that are really necessary in order to tell your story? In which case, you just want to say, okay, well, what's going to be the friction that I'm going to feel here? So if you think of True Detective, True Detective is a procedural. We've actually seen millions of procedurals. I'm exaggerating, but we've seen, we've seen hundreds of procedurals. It is a tried and true form that's actually very easy to write. They always work. They always make money. CSI is a procedural. Law and order is a procedural. So there is no friction whatsoever on the procedural side of things. So when, when the producer goes, oh my god, how are we going to do this? You've got two main characters? Are you kidding me? And we have interviews and flashbacks? You go, I know, I know, I know. But it's just a procedural. Right? At the end of the day, it's just a crime. It's got to be solved, and each episode, they're going to get a little closer, and these are going to be the people that they interview, and there's going to be the pressure from the boss, and, and then because of that, you get to sneak in your beautiful execution and your philosophy, right? I mean, really, it's a philosophical, in my class, we would call it a Hegelian dialectical structure, where you have two opposing philosophies about how to be in the world, and they're at odds with each other. And they're both right. Yeah, yes. That's the strongest they're, way to do it. Two Jews in a room. Yeah. Right? You, there's also, this is also how Seven was built. 
it's the same, it's the same concept. So what you do is you say, you can't do true detective without that point of friction. That point of friction is the thing that makes true detective worth watching. But at the end of the day, it's a procedural. And it's serving all those other, uh, I call it feeding the genre beast. It feeds the genre beast in all of those other ways. And I'm sure some people passed on True Detective because they're like, I don't know what to do with these. I, I, I have a, a series project of my own from way, way, way back when. Um, that's a half-hour comedy. Uh, my mom is a hypnotherapist, and it's called Hypno Mom. And it's, it's my, my favorite thing that I've ever written and not sold. Um, and at that time, now it's actually much easier to sell a, a, a sitcom like that because you're, we're, not, we're not locked in multi-camera and we don't, all, all these sitcoms don't have ABC stories. At that time, I was like, no, the way this piece works is it just follows my mom. That's what it is. And I, I was really interested in what does a woman, you know, at that point she was in her, her late 40s and her children had, had done the unthinkable. We had both grown up and left the house and... She, she has, she's a brilliant woman with a brilliant career, but all she really wanted to do was be a mom. And she doesn't get to do that anymore, and what, what do you do? And I was interested in that. I wanted, I wanted to write about what, what do those women go through. And my mom happens to be a hypnotherapist, and it happens to be very funny. But that's really what I wanted to look at. So I knew it was a point of friction. And in fact, I had a producer who, who, had, who was developing it, and we ended up splitting because the producer kept saying, I need an ABC story. I can't sell this. And I said, I know you can't sell this, but, but somebody can sell this. Um, and this particular project, that point of friction was what the project was about. So that project didn't sell then, although I probably should bring it back out now because <laughs> things have changed. And it's actually would be much more commercial now than it was then. So if you have points of friction, you have to ask yourself, is this me being a pain in the ass artist? Or is this me defending what is the most valuable part of my project? And if it's you being a pain in the ass artist, get over yourself because we work in a collaborative field and you've got to serve you know, if you write the most beautiful artistic thing ever and nobody can see it, no one can pitch it, no one can tell their friend what it's about, well, have you really accomplished art? You know, or have you just accomplished self-aggrandizement? Um, on the other hand, if you're willing to compromise what your piece is about, then what the hell are you building? Why are you doing this? So when you have points of friction that you're not willing to compromise on, you have to ask yourself, okay, how do I serve the genre beast around it? Okay, so I got this one thing that tastes like medicine, and I know it tastes like medicine. What is the candy that I can put around it? Um, so uh, you see this in Sons of Anarchy. Um, now, Sons of Anarchy kind of fell apart for, I think, exactly the reason that George was talking about. They got away from their Bible. So if you look at the first season of Sons of Anarchy, it's Hamlet. They're doing Hamlet, and that's what's interesting about it. But they know if you go to a producer and you're like, you know, it's Hamlet with motorcycle gangs, okay, cool, but that's not enough. 
So they serve the genre beast. There is a motorcycle chase sequence in every single episode. And that the chase sequences and those shootouts let them get away because they have those genre elements that are part of the story and they fit. It's not like they're tacked on, they fit. It lets them get away with doing the really interesting character <coughs> Hamlet stuff. They get to, as long as you serve the, the um, uh, Orange is the New Black, he's actually said, he's like, I finally get to tell a story about minority women. Amazing. She. She, I'm sorry. She, uh, she I, I finally get to tell a story about minority women. Uh, the only problem is I have to, to, to have a white man character in order to do it. Um, and and that's, a, that's a big deal. But, okay, at the end of the day, they need to be able to sell this project. Unfortunately, producers at least think, or those producers at least think, that we live in a society where you need a white lead in order to, to sell that. That might be true, that might be completely false. Um, but because, because they serve that one genre element, and look, she spends the whole time making fun of Piper, right? There's, oh, there's a very clear look at how ridiculous Piper's world is. Um, but because of that, she's able to tell the story that she really wants to tell, which is the story of these, these minority women that have really stories that have never been seen on television before. And so you're using, you're using uh, uh, one more example, Will and Grace. Will and Grace changed the world with stereotyped gay characters, right? So those characters are very stereotypical. They're not the more, even Modern Family, we see much more complex gay characters. In that, you know, oh, it's a sitcom about about gay people, that is, that's a point of friction, guys, right? You know that's a point of friction. But you're, you're not just going to make one of them straight, right? You're, you, that's what it's about. Well, that's interesting to you because they're equivalent, right? You can't tell me which one's the star, hmm. right? <laughs> so it might be an interesting model to look yeah. at, to look yeah. at Will and Grace. It's a comedy version of what, right. but, yeah. but it sounds like what you're saying is, that's quite okay. If, if we're sitting in your shoot, it's, it's okay. Just make sure that the surrounding elements offer... That's right. Make sure... So, so Will and Grace is funny and safe. By the way, are you aware that uh, the two shows you just cited were created by siblings? No, I had no idea. Will and Grace was uh, uh, somebody whose last name was Cohan, and her show is Cohan. <laughs> She's the sister of Cohan. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so it's safe. And at that point, you couldn't get a dangerous show... Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, here are the stereotypes that we accept, but we're going to make mainstream America watch them. And now, because of that, you can actually go much further. That's no longer a point of friction anymore. Um, that's now, oh, that works. Whew, okay. We're safe. And I, I mean, I think, I think that Will and Grace actually changed the world. Um, and so... By understanding, you know, it's really easy as writers to feel like we're in conflict with producers. Like, they're the bad guys, um, and we're the good guys, and, you know, they just want to water down our art, and we're just trying to tell really important stories. Um, and some producers are bad people, but... Um, <laughs> 
Many producers are bad people. But okay, all of them. Okay, all, they are bad people. <laughs> um, but what they're doing is necessary for you if you actually want to create art. Which is, and I'm not even talking about the money. Producers get you butts and seats. And if you don't have butts and seats, then you've spent all this time putting your butt in your seat, right? And created, and they spent all this money, and you spent your life, you dedicated your life to this thing. And you want people to watch it. And so that means there are certain genre elements, and they're going to be different for each script, you know? But if you're, if you're writing Modern Family, right, it better, by the end of each episode, we better feel like this family loves each other. Um, that's the genre element. That's the feeling that lets them get away with all the terrible things they do to each other, right? So they get to be horrible to each other as long as underneath of it, at the end of the day, is love. Um, so you don't have to start with genre elements. Don't start like, oh, I'm going to serve these genre elements. Just write what you want to write. And then look at it from a producer's perspective and go, if I wanted to, there are only two things producers want with series. They want to run it forever, and they want people to watch it. So look at what you've written and say, what's going to keep this from running forever? And see if you can fix that. So that it from what's going to stop it. Yeah, what's going to stop it from running forever and fix that. That's the engine he was talking about. What's going to stop the engine? Yeah. But it doesn't sound like equivalent protagonists are going to stop it. Yeah. And as then long as they, whatever their conflict is remains. That's right. So you know that's a point of friction, potentially, because it's unusual. So you're going to say, true detective, have a couple of series in your back pocket that you've seen that, you, that are like yours that have made a shitload of money. So that when they say, well, we're a little concerned about the two protagonists, you say, you know, I totally understand where you're coming from. I have three models that I'd like to, to talk to you about. And then you can go to IMDb Pro, you can tell them how much they made. And be like, True Detective made this much money. You know, uh, uh, Will and Grace ran for this many seasons. Uh, so there's a model for this. Um, you were just talking about Mr. and Mrs. Smith an hour ago. Have yeah. you ever seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Yes. Is your uh, idea anything like that? No, no, it's a true story. Am I William the West? So it's a sort of it's a journey of two people. Uh, husband and wife they get separated and have to find each other across America. So one's going one way, one's going the other. Yeah, oh, so, so it is central. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna be, gonna, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, and that that is a good way to have two characters who feel like they each have their own just main, you know, they're their main character, their own story that they're in. Yes. They're not together. They're, we're kind of following two separate storylines that the we're going back and we're cutting yeah. back and forth between that eventually intertwine. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's a, that's a, actually another way to to do it, right. like it, you know, it's it's basically two stories interwoven. How come these non-Americans are so good at writing the American? <laughs> I don't know. We just I'll keep stealing whatever you guys are, come up with. So as soon as you're done and make the show, the let me know so I can do it. Yeah. Um, it was originally done in Britain, yeah, but they the here they're all Americans. The Veep people are Brits. I didn't even know that. Really. <laughs> Veep, has, have you guys, huh. I mean, I don't know, yeah, you talk about watching. the ascension of power of Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Veep, yeah. first season, I went, eh, it's great. Yeah, I was just watching it. And it's a little week. bit about her attempt 
to ascend mm -hmm. to power, but because one is serious, he's going to get power. Hers, she's constantly thwarted. Right. In a funny way. But, and, they're, and, and, and they both have roots in Great Britain, not here, and yet they're so American. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned heroes earlier. When you have five or a set of characters that are all important, mm -hmm. and you're trying to create a, a pilot around sci-fi elements with all of these five characters, what do you do? Do you start off with two? Because I started with five, and that lost. I wrote a draft, but I put it away in the drawer right now, and I'm like, I'm lost. So what do you, and I need to go back to do a rewrite. Should I just start with two of those characters and then introduce the other? I, I mean, anything, anything you can do that can get you moving, like to get you writing, is a good thing to do. So, um, and so that might be perfect, a perfect way for you to do it and not work for other people. Um, for me, like, I would do it a different way. Like, I, I would like work on each character separately and sort of figure out what they're what they're doing in relation to whoever, wh whoever or whatever forces the main antagonist uh, of the show. So, for example, in Heroes with Siler. So what is the relationship of all those five people to Siler? And okay, so what what would if I just was telling you a movie about those two people, what would that or show? What what would that what would it be? And okay, what if it's the same antagonist but the, this character? That's I might start, you know, working around like sort of kind of what Jerry was saying about the constellation of characters, you know, the relationships because that's where the drama is. And so you want to get in there. And then serve, like what Jake said, then serve the constraints of the particular genre second, in a secondary way. However, sometimes you're like, I don't know, I'm just envisioning this really awesome moment where he leaps off the building and goes flying halfway across Manhattan. I don't know why I'm so drawn to that and excited about it, but it makes me want to write it. Like, okay, well, there's, that feels like a genre thing, but there's probably something about, something about the character there that is underlying that. So it, it might be going in through that way and like just figuring out why did you pick character A? Like what about that character got you excited and okay what you know what about that character's personality is in conflict with the with the main source of antagonism in the in the entire show. That's so interesting. Whatever gets you started writing, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean so I, I don't want to I wouldn't want to be prescriptive about it. I think it whatever works for any person is a, it's great. Like don't 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 not do something you know that's working for you. Um, but uh, I would try I would try that. I mean, if it felt overwhelming to work with five characters, you know, then take a step back and work with two for a while, and then you get a feel for what the show is. It's all about finding the. And I, I learned a lot of this actually um, in an in, a, in an intellectual way, like understanding what what why it was working through another class at the studio that Jessica Hines teaches, meditative writing, where you're trying to, I, I can't sum it up in a, in, a, in, a, in a really concise way, but basically, in the end, you're trying to feel the show, like, with, or the movie, or whatever it is you're writing, novel, anything, in your body, like you have a sensation, literally, like an actual, um, something resonates with you in a certain way. Uh, when you can get that feeling, you can write anything. Like you, you have you have the show. Then suddenly you you you'll see that you like once you suddenly lock it in. A you'll know you'll know. Like it's so clear and obvious. You're like oh I got it. Then you can bring in any character and be like oh okay this character no this character doesn't belong. Like okay you know this oh this character does work. Okay so I'm gonna add that character in and it becomes a lot easier once you. 
feel what the show is. And it has its own demands. You just don't know what they are. But they come to you in this organic way, which is obviously the best way. Um, and if you're having trouble getting there, it, there's always the, you know, brainstorming, you know, going that route of like just writing everything down as many things like it's Jerry's talking about, like for a particular character, everything, you, every single thing you can think about them, you know, that kind of thing. Those are great moments that he's talking about, and they exist. But don't believe anybody. You hear the cliche after you get the idea. Oh, it, the story writes itself. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it never writes itself. Yeah. But you're gonna hear people say it. Yeah, I. It you're grind it. It's just as hard. Yeah, it's just as hard. The good thing though is that you know that you're at least on the right yeah. path. Yeah. So it may not work when you get done with the first draft of it, but you know that you were heading in the right direction, and now you just gotta keep working on it until it's nice and shiny and actually does work. I want to share an anecdote that's not maybe relevant, but it might be to somebody, but you reminded me with Hypno Mom real quick. A guy I work with created Desperate Housewives, and he was sitting with his mom, approaching forward. He didn't know what he was going to do. And I don't know if he remembers, eight or ten years ago, there was a Houston housewife who drove her car into a lake and drowned all of her children. And he was, yeah. like, horrified watching this with his mother. They were watching, Mom, do you see what happened? And she looked over at him with a cigarette, took an in inhale, and just looked at him and said, and exhaled and said, I've been there. <laughs> and he said, that's, that, that's where he got the idea for the show, right there. So it could come, that moment yeah. could come. He said, I, I thought all housewives were happy and they liked their life. And that became his hit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we were talking a little bit. We come from we've been making short films. We kind of work with that about creating your own work rather than doing the spec script, hoping somebody reads it route. And, uh... I'm a big fan of that. This is, I think, the most exciting time ever to be a writer. When I was coming up, we had, I mean, you would have, like, a VHS tape could go into your, your camera, you know, but, like, we, we had to shoot on film. And that was incredibly expensive, and you needed a distributor to distribute for you. So, even if you shot an amazing short, there was nothing you could do with it. Um, and now we have the power of the internet. And, you know, even, I mean, back in the 90s, South Park started with a Christmas card. It was, they made a funny Christmas card with Santa and Jesus fighting. <laughs> and, and Comedy Central got a hold of it and said, hey, will you pitch us a show? And so if you're able to generate quality content, I think it's easier in comedy than it is in drama. Yeah. I think because people forward comedy, so you can distribute yourself. In a forward serialized Um, It's harder, yeah. Although I think we're going to a place, and I think Netflix has really clearly established this. If you look five, ten years into the future, there will be channels where you can distribute your own series, I believe. And I think that you know, just like Amazon is, you know, anyone can sell on Amazon. I think we're looking towards a future where anyone can have a series on whatever, you know, the, the indie flicks is. I think that's where it's going. I think we're, the networks are dying, are dying breed because computer and cell phone and TV are all becoming one thing. And so this is a really exciting time. And when you speak to producers now, they want to see people who have done it. It's so much easier to get a producer like, hey, watch this three-minute video. 
than it is to get them to sit down and read a, a 30-page script or a 90-page script. And if you develop a following, uh, you know, one of my students in my master class did a zombie movie. It's a 10-minute zombie piece. He's, he's really interesting, talking about feeding the genre monster. He really wants to just tell little character-driven stories about family. And he masks them in zombie movies. And he gets away with stuff he could never get away with if he wasn't writing zombie movies. So he has this thing on YouTube. It got a million hits. And that, that's not even family. That is just, it's literally just a zombie chase sequence. And it got a million hits. And now people are saying, well, do you have a feature version? And he's going, oh my god, I have to write a feature version. But, but yes, it is, it is definitely easier when people come to you than when you come to them. Because everybody is coming to them. What you really want is them to come to you. Now, that's not right for everybody. You know, not everybody is going to produce their own stuff. If you can get somebody else to pay you for it, that is a hell of a lot easier. Do that. But if somebody says no to you, my advice is to say, fuck you, and do it yourself. Uh, because you can. And you can show them that it works. And you can develop followings, and these things are really popular. So I think, I think that's what it's all about. Um, you can distribute yourself. There are tons of short film festivals that you can compete in. Look, if you want to break in, calling a producer and saying, we were finalists in 15 festivals is a lot, a lot easier than calling a producer and saying, I have a script. They're not going to make your script. They might not even read your script just because of that. But it, it at least gives them the knowledge that somebody thought that this worked. They're less likely to be wasting their time. Do what you want to do, guys. Like, do what you want to do. If you want to produce your own work, produce your own work. If you want to write television, write television. If you want to write, don't do the thing that's smart. You're already doing something stupid. You're a writer, right? <laughs> like, like, what we're doing already doesn't make sense. So, you know, if you wanted to make money, become an accountant. And you will definitely... You will definitely make money. You, you can even steal money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I want to add something. I think it's, it also gives you a way to, I mean, A, you have them coming to you because you've gotten a million hits or more. And, or B, you get a meeting with somebody. And even going back to late 90s, I remember when we would pitch shows when I worked for Sam Raimi, he would have, he would, pay 20 grand to have an editor cut together footage of the actor that they had in mind from different movies with other movies that were the right genre and like you take they would assemble all these little bits and pieces to show the kind of show that Sam wanted to make and they would literally be like three minutes long max, maximum because that's the attention span of the average producer oh studio executive oh if you're lucky so um, and then you, and you make it exciting you put the music and a voiceover the, the whole thing and then they're like you know whereas you give them a piece of paper with black on it and they have to look at it and then take it home and like you know they're just like oh okay uh, but they literally they'll for three minutes you have them so what the advantage is that you, you you're getting both like you can go out do your own thing generate a following and while at the same time you're trying to get meetings from that from that piece like let's say you had a feature version of it or a pilot or I don't know whatever it is but you think it would be best you could come into the pitch meeting and say, well, let me just show you what it is. 
Before I even, I'm not going to say a word, I'll, just, I'll let it speak for itself, and you put it on, and then you can talk a little bit, but pitches are normally 15 minutes anyway, because they want you out as soon as possible, so it just makes it a lot easier. So I think you're basically doing yourself, it benefits you in two ways to do your own material. So yeah. And one third benefit, and then we'll move on to the next question, is, so uh, a student in my pro-lab class just uh, shot, actually just finished editing. His, he shot a movie, he shot it um, on $4,000, which is insane, feature film. They had no, no money to make photocopies. They were literally reading their scripts off their iPhones. Um, and um, he, he shot a rough draft, which I said, write another draft. And he shot a rough draft. And we were talking about it, and he's like, I've learned so much about writing by trying to edit this damn thing that I shot. Because he, he said, oh my god, I realized what this scene was actually about in the editing room. But I didn't know what it was about when I directed it or when I wrote it. And so the dialogue and the ca actual, actor's choices and the direction are not doing what I actually need it to do. And it's, it's really um, the other great thing about shooting something, even if you do it with nobody, even if you just do it on your iPhone, is you will learn about writing. You will learn like, like oh wow, my character's not doing anything. Or, or this shot is boring, you know? A lot of times we write action and it's dead boring. And, but it seems fine because it's just a line. But then you got to direct it and the actor's like, um, what do I do? <laughs> and you're like, you stand here, you know? Um, and so just the process of, of shooting your own stuff, it teaches you, it teaches you how somebody else is looking yeah. at it. All right, who else had a question? Yeah. So in terms of an hour long, uh, pitching, pitching a pilot. The idea I have for for this uh, pilot, it seems like it's more of a mini series because I don't know if it could go a whole season. Mm -hmm. I know the, what the ending is. Okay. Should I make it a whole season and just like cut it shorter, break you know, break it down even more so? Um, I would literally, if if it's fine with you, make it specific to whatever company you're going to. So, for example, if you're going to HBO, you can absolutely pitch them basically a 10-hour miniseries because they do 10-episode series. Like Game of Thrones, every season is, is only 10 episodes. It used to be 13, and now it's down to 10 so that they can amortize the cost of the 13 across 10 so you get more per episode. So if it can, if it can be 10 episodes, I would go in and pitch it as 10 episodes. They are doing more miniseries, like the, the 24 thing they're doing right now. Like, which they got away from for a while. They really weren't doing miniseries, I think, for the last five, six years. So if I was going to, if I was going to NBC, I'd pitch it, or Fox, or you know, a, a broadcast network, I might pitch it as a miniseries. But I would just figure out what kind of, whoever you're going to pitch to, what are the shows that they're co most comfortable making, and try to see if you're, it, what you're doing will fit into that kind of format. And if it can, then I would go for it. If you don't think it's going to work, you're never going to convince them it's going to work. Because I've seen um, a couple shows, uh, British shows, that were like Danish shows, like Wallander or Top of the Lake, which I think was Australian and New Zealand. Yeah. And they were shorter, too. I can't remember how long exactly. I, I, the shortest I've seen is that's been transported from another, from a foreign country to to, to the United States has been eight, an eight episode. Um, if it's not called a miniseries, like that, they call this, you know, that's the season, is eight episodes. But, you know, it's just things are, are changing so quickly that, you might be the person who says, like, I, fig I figured out the four-episode season. Hatfield and McCoy's with Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's a great example. 
That's a great example. That, it was basically a miniseries. So it's definitely coming back, especially when big stars are willing to jump into these roles because they know, like, I can go do all my movies that I normally do and then do TV for a little while and then go back out. Like, you're seeing that more and more, more and more film stars in television shows, which annoys all my actor friends. Because <laughs> they're like, that, I did a lot of the roles I normally get. Now it's, you know, how can I compete? It's, you know, Kevin Costner, I can't get that one. So, yeah, I mean, that would be my... But what George is talking about as far as making sure it fits the model that they are currently doing is really important. I actually worked in miniseries for years as a producer. And one of the things I always wanted to make, uh, Ken Follett has, has a book called Pillars of the Earth. Uh, and it finally was made. Um, and I, I, had, I had a guy who could get the rights to it for years, and, and we were trying to put it together, and everybody wanted to do it. It's, it's, he's a very famous author. He's one of the best, uh, best-selling authors of all time, and this is his best-selling book, and it's, an, it's a no-brainer to do this. Uh, and Ken Follett insisted on an eight-hour miniseries, and the network said, we'll do, it in four, we'll do a four-hour miniseries. We won't do eight, and we could never get it made. Uh, and that was, we had a huge production company behind us. We had the money to make it. You know, we had a track record of doing these miniseries. So you need to know, and this is what I was talking about with those points of friction. You're not going to convince these, these, these networks have business models that come down from on high. So if you're doing your own work, don't worry about this at all. Just do what makes you happy. But if you want to work at an established network, these business models come down from on high. Sometimes they're stupid, but it's as if God said them until they change. Um, you're not going to convince a network to do something that's outside of their business model, even if it's a really great project. They're going to say, that's not our business model. We don't do it. So you want to say, okay, am I working on something that's just not going to sell right now and I'll wait and eventually it'll sell or I'll do it myself or I'll sell it to you know, a little fledgling network or I'll sell it to Amazon or, you know, uh, someplace that is a little less rigid in what they do? Or is there a way that I can pitch this where a network can see that and go, oh yes, that fits the kind of thing that we're doing right now. I get how this fits. And part of that is just, you know, when you go out to pitch, you should talk to everybody about your script, but don't waste your energy getting to anybody. Waste your energy getting to the person Spend your energy getting to the person who's actually likely to make what you're working on, you know? Yeah, like, also, and spe very specifically, like, this studio, this person. Like, yeah. I, ha I have a bunch of friends who are studio executives. I know it's crazy, but I actually have friends who are studio executives, because um, they're not all jerks. Um, <laughs> and, and one of them, was, I realized, like, oh, Mike, um, every single show you do has a strong female protagonist with a, you know, it's, and I just laid out, he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> He's like, that, that's, what I look, that's what I'm looking for. It's like, oh, okay. And then I realized, oh, wait. That there are people individually at the studios or production company, wherever you're going, who have very specific interests that have to fit within the model of the studio or network they're working for, but then it, in, at that more particular level, want something specific. And you can just go back on IMDb and look them up and, go, and look up the shows that are similar and see what name keeps coming up. That name keeps coming up. That, what, even if it's an agent or a manager, because you, if you get that agent or manager, they can be like, oh, yeah, I know how to, I know everybody who buys these scripts. That's why my name keeps coming up. Like, 
So yeah, I mean, I, that, I, I would target all the way down to that level if it's, you know, you can, we have access to so much information these days that you probably can figure it out. Like, well, what would you guys say? Because if I was sitting there, I would be a little confused about chicken for the egg. Because we started out saying, I was just write about what to you say care, that. write what you're passionate about. Now we're talking about look at the marketplace and try to hit that target. Yes. I would say start with what you care about and then find the That's yeah, right. I would agree. Sell out second. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, if you don't have something worth selling, there's no point in selling out. In other words, yeah, yeah. write something that's worth buying. Like, when you sell, I don't know the numbers in TV, but I know the numbers in features. When you sell a movie, you're asking somewhere, someone to put somewhere between one million and a hundred million, or maybe two hundred million. Two hundred million. Yeah, I don't write action. <laughs> uh, One million and two hundred million dollars of their money into your project, and you have to think: Would I put two? If I had two hundred million dollars, would I gamble two hundred million dollars of my money on this project? You're actually think about those numbers. You're saying that if you have a hundred-page script, every page of your script could be worth up to two million dollars. Every page. That means like that one line of dialogue, that crappy line of dialogue you phoned in because you didn't really give a shit. <laughs> that line could be worth two hundred thousand dollars. That's what, the actual value, and you have to ask yourself: Is that a two hundred thousand dollar line? If somebody said to me, "You can have two hundred thousand dollars for your wallet, or two hundred thousand dollars for that line, and trust that you're going to get so many residuals from having that great line that you'll make the two hundred thousand dollars back." Would you be like, you know what? I'll take the two hundred grand, <laughs> or would you be like, give me the goddamn line? And when you know that you're, you would say, give me the line. Now you know that you can feel comfortable going in to a producer and asking them to do the same because you know that you've actually put the work in to bring it to that level of quality that it would be worth it for you. You take the gamble on your own piece, and so first. Make sure that everything in your script is would be worth your money, that you love it that much, and then say, okay, now I mean this is what we do at the studio. Like when we build a class, we don't go, what are people buying? We say, what do what do we want to say? Like what what do we want to give the students? What's the gift that we want them to leave with? And then we figure out once we know what that is, then we figure out. Okay, well, to do that, students would have to pay a hundred thousand dollars a year. What's the version of that where they could spend, you know, eight hundred dollars? What's you know, I can that we can then package it in a way that people can buy. And you're doing the same thing with your script. You're saying, okay, this is it in its purest form, exactly what I want it to be. Now, what's important here? What are the potential points of friction? What are the places where I can compromise on those points of friction and still have the movie that's worth making? And what, where are the points where, if I compromise, it's no longer worth making? If your script doesn't piss somebody off, it's not good. I'm curious. Um, series arcs. I know in screenwriting, your characters have an arc. They start in one place on page one and end on page one hundred. But in television series, both comedies and hour-long, um, you could argue Tony Soprano. Didn't have much more. I didn't. He was sort of essentially the same character from that first to last. But do you see series arcs Breaking Bad? You could argue had he had a serial a series arc. So can you address? Is that a trend? Is it in hour long? Is it in half hour? And what should we be looking to do and not to do? 
What do you think? I, I, we were talking during the break that sitcoms are different in the sense that each one ends, the central character has his little journey, but he doesn't get anywhere because he has to be, by definition, the same person at the end of every episode that he was at the beginning of the episode. So that augurs against serialization or anthologization. But there are shows. Like, I didn't see the new Netflix version of Arrested Development, but I know that they mapped that whole season out intricately. A lot of people didn't like that. I don't like that. And I really feel like comedy is tough enough. You ever hear the, I don't even know who Horace Walpole was, but he was some British something, critic, philosopher, something. And he was on his deathbed, about to breathe his last breath. And this is not a joke. He really, I'm sorry, Mr. Walpole, this must be very difficult. And he said, literally said, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> so, so, so comedy is hard. And that's why I was saying earlier that almost nobody that I know, and I'm talking about big people, when they pretend that they know after they sell a pilot what episode two is going to be, they're vamping and they're bullshitting. They don't know. But, but that's not etched in stone either because I can't think of any now, but I know that there are some companies. Well, you brought up 30 Rock. Pardon? Episodes, the British yeah. television, yeah. sitcom, yes. comedy. It, it that is has an art. Yes, it does. And it works. Yeah. A House of... Lies with Don Cheadle yeah. as a series arc, yeah. and it fell apart in the second season uh, because the central character changed. I wouldn't do it. I personally wouldn't do it because it's like I said, it's hard enough to find the individual stories, but then when they have to fit. Yeah. Um, but but Jake reminded me, Thirty Rock did an excellent job of it. It had a bunch of different arcs. Parks and Rec too. They they Met get married. Dances, they get together. The yeah. City. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, in 30 Rock case, the network, who's going to get the big job? Um, it's tougher. It's tougher. So I don't know. We're, we're not really answering the question. It's, it's, I guess it's up to the individual. As Jake was saying earlier, I don't know, did you ever hear the joke about, about writers? A, write, a screenwriter might not even be there when they're shooting his movie. But TV, the writer is king. The difference is, I think screenwriters, they write you know, not not in every case, but they write more um, deeply, intricately, truthfully. A lot of what my half hour, myself and colleagues, uh, it doesn't start from a place of passion. What do I care about? What must I get off of my chest in order to, a, a passion or, a, or, a, or, a, or a animosity? You don't start with what do I care about each week. You start with I got a half hour of dead air to fill this Tuesday. What can I pretend to care about? <laughs> So, so it's 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 a different. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's invalid. It's just a different muscle where you're you're fitting uh, a genre. Um, um, and if you come on, I, I, I've come on to shows that were already long. They were already running for a long time. So you cannot be. You can be original in your I don't know story conception or some of your jokes, but you cannot be original in terms of the characters. They're already there. So. That's so hard to do that adding the extra layer of, oh, I got I to gotta know how this whole season is going to progress, that's an extra. We've just mentioned examples of people who do it, and I take my hat off to them, and they're brilliant, but it's hard. So I personally wouldn't, wouldn't shoot for that, and you don't have to shoot for that. I don't know that you can prove that those shows are, are necessarily better because of that or more viewed because of that or more long-lasting because of that. 
Um, um, it's just going to be up to the individual writer. Oh, and then back to what I was saying. So in Hollywood, you ever hear the joke? Did you hear about the Polish actress? She slept with a screenwriter. <laughs> so, so, but in TV, they actually do sleep with showrunners because, because the, the, you know, the writer can't hire her, but in TV, the writer can. So um, I didn't know. I thought writers were... Another reason to get into TV. <laughs> I thought that writing was writing. I thought writing was taking your ten fingernails and scratching it to 26 letters in it. And it is. But in order for you to get your stuff on the air, you first have to kiss ass, break in, uh, do everything that the producer tells you to do, don't fight with them, don't argue, work your way up, build your way up. And then something I never foresaw. Some of you guys, and you, if you make movies, you know, I didn't know that to get to be the guy who calls the shots, the executive producer, the showrunner, to get there, you have to talk to the director about camera angles. You have to talk to the wardrobe lady about if the shirt going to be green or is the shirt going to be blue. You have to sit in on casting and choose actors. Oh, my goodness, you're in a room with actors. Then um, um, well, but there's all that ancillary theatrical stuff that I didn't know about that you have to do, but, but then when you are the executive producer, on top of doing all that other stuff, 98% of what you have to do is the writing. Your own, supervise your staff, uh, keep the train moving so that you do know, even though I'm saying don't anthologize, you still have to know that, okay, this week we're doing this show, but we're, we don't have one ready for next week, and we, don't, and we need something for the next week. So you have to know what stage, outline, second draft of the outline, first draft of the script, second draft of the You have to know where you are and keep that train moving. And um, um, I'm bouncing around, but one anecdote that you'll enjoy, the um, showrunner for um, Everybody Loves Raymond, he was very efficient. And that show, after shows are on for a while, they get to be a little... It's not uncommon for us in... I don't probably same for you. It's not uncommon to be at work, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, yeah. 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning, once 5 in the morning on the Golden Girls and had to be back at 9.30. It's not uncommon because one of these Philistine executive, uh, network executives will say, um, just because maybe he didn't have the proper, uh, uh, I, I don't he, he'll tell you to change something that might not necessarily need changing, and he doesn't realize it like a cheap Kmart sweater. If you pull that one thread, the whole sleeve falls off. So to him, it's easy. Give me a different acronym. Give me a different problem for this character. And then you have to stay there till 5 in the morning to do it. Um, um, but on Everybody Loves Raymond, they always went home at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock because he was efficient. The show was a hit. They, he was able to say, leave me alone. But he had a rule, and I think you'll laugh at this if you know the show. Um, I will let everybody go home at 7 o'clock on one condition. Each one of you picks a fight with your spouse and come back and talk, talk to us about it tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to do it. They really had to do it or else he would make him stay late. Yeah. A quick thought on the anthologizing. You want to understand there's a financial reason why networks used to never anthologize, which is that they made their real money on syndication, which is oh, yeah. selling it to play on other networks out of order. And so HBO started to change that model because HBO doesn't give a shit about syndication. HBO cares about subscriptions. It's a different business model. So they're not going to make their money syndicating. So you want to look, if you're thinking about, um, if you're thinking about do I want to serialize this, you want to ask yourself, what network is it for? And you want to watch what's on their network. What's, what's the most likely network to buy this? And if they're not serializing anything. There's a very good chance that they make their money in syndication. 
The other thing you want to be aware of with serializing is the danger of allowing characters to change. And look, I'm a screenwriter primarily. So for me, it's all about the character change. That's the strongest tool I have. And that's why, like, a moment in Game of Thrones where they cut Ned, Stark, Ned Stark's head off. I hope I haven't ruined that for anyone. Uh, it, a moment in Game of Thrones like that, you're like, <gasps> because you've been following and you care. And it's a shock. It's surprising. At the same time, there goes your engine, right? Everything you built in that first season is now completely undone. And if you watch the second season, you watch how much exposition they have to go through just to build that engine up again. Um, uh, the same exact thing happened with um, uh, Six Feet Under. I think one of the great series of all time, at least the, the first season. Beheading? The Beheading, yes. <laughs> you guys don't remember that episode. Um, the, the first season is about a family that can't deal with death. And mom is staring at frying pans and, and nobody can deal with death. And by the end of the first season, they've all dealt with the loss of their father. And suddenly there's no engine. And it turns into, what was beautiful about that show was nothing ever happened. It was just about the family's relationship and their inability to deal with death. And that wonderful irony of the family that can't deal with death who runs a funeral home. And you can see how simple that pitch is. At the end of season one, that's over. There's no engine anymore. And by the final season, it was still beautifully written because it's Alan Ball, but it turned into a melodrama, right? You got to give Nate brain cancer just to keep the problem of death alive. Um, you've got people got to disappear. Like it's, it turned into a soap opera because they, they undercut their engine. They, they took their engine away. Um, so the thing you want to be, you want to think about if you're going to, on the other hand, The Wire, they totally changed things and nothing bad happened to their engine because their engine was that each, each season we would go into a different aspect of Baltimore's politics. So it didn't matter if you kill off a bunch of drug dealers because the next season's about education or the next season's about the newspapers or the next season's about the docs. So you want to think about when you make those decisions, how does that affect the engine of your piece? Does it make the engine of your piece stronger? Or does it, does it undercut the, the engine of your piece? Um, will people still be able, you know, if you watch Game of Thrones, there are all these walk and talk scenes. And they're really just saying, for those of you who weren't in the, watching the last, season, the last episode, there's like 15 minutes just of previously on Game of Thrones. Whereas if, if you did what Jerry was talking about, you wouldn't have to do all that. You could just really enjoy uh, what's, happening now. what's happening right now. And so I don't think one is better than the other. As a screenwriter, I like change because it's the most powerful tool we have. And if you do it right, you're going to write The Wire. And that's better than you can do writing Law and Order. But it, or, you know, or you're going to write True Detective. Or, or you're going to write... Um, you're going to write uh, 30 Rock. If you do it, it, but if it undercuts your engine, you have to ask yourself, is it worth the cost? I, I'll just add to that uh, quickly. Um, it's, not, it's, not, bless you, it's not that you, ha you required now to think about season arcs, series arcs. It's that we now have the option to do that. 
So you, there's always going to be a market for procedurals and episodic shows, and but now there's also a market for serialized shows where you can think about that. So it's more of your personal preference and what and what's right for this particular show that you're that you're creating or working on. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier about you know having trouble trying to get the studio interested in doing serialized shows in the late '90s. I, I was writing on Xena and. I went to the showrunners and I was like, and, oh, they, they said, I would volunteer for everything. Like Jerry was talking about, like the great thing about being a TV writer is you are literally in charge of everything. Like you, you, you bring the director in and you're like, I want you to do this and this. Everything should be in shades of blue. You know, no, shut up. Just do blue. And you, it's just, you just, you do everything and they, it's great. Um, and I would volunteer like, uh, be at playback at 7 a.m. in like crappy part of Los Angeles to watch the final episode and they'd be like, really? You will do that for us? Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So finally, I said, "Will you let me? Can I arc out a season?" They were like, um, "You can. You can try. I don't know if the studio is going to go for it." I said, "Well, I have an idea of a way to do it, which was to to sneak it past them. Was to go. I'm going to basically make uh, a, a series of linchpin episodes. So there'll be uh, the first episode of the season. This big event happens, and that causes us to go in the direction A." And I know I want to end up at Direction Z at the end of the season, but we're just going in Direction A, and then there's going to be six episodes that are just in that milieu, like that that kind of uh, whatever I set up in, in Episode A. We're just going to you know vamp as we're doing the you know monster of the week um, until we get to the next Lynchman episode, and then we'll make another turn and we'll kill that character off. So literally, and we we we, we I mean. Lucy was pregnant this, Lucy Lawless was pregnant this season, and we knew, she, I mean, you could see she was pregnant at a certain point, so we're like, okay, so she's obviously pregnant in the show. Um, so that, it wasn't the reverse. We weren't like, we were like, you have to get pregnant now. Um, and, but so, so, obviously, so then she has a, the, the character now has a baby during the season, because, you know, just, that's what happens. And she's literally carrying the baby around. We can't have her like, um, I'm going to just leave the baby over here. And we're like, that's awful. Like, we can't have her do that. And we were like all, you know, like feminist rights. And we were like, the show was like very much about that for us. We're like, we can't have her do that. That's terrible. So after like the fifth episode of like throwing the baby up in the air, hacking a couple people in half, and then catching the baby, it gets boring. So I was like, okay, so when we do that, so after we do that for five episodes, then let's get rid of the baby. And they're like, we can't do that. And I said, well, I have an idea. What if we jump forward by 25 years magically? Because really, we have a magical universe. So, well, then the daughter is abandoned. She thinks she's abandoned. And Xena shows up 25 years later. Her daughter is now 25 and hates her mother who abandoned her, even though it wasn't Xena's fault. And, and they were like, all right, you can try to pitch that. And they let us do it. And that was the, we literally did that for that season. And the final three episodes were totally serialized. It was, like, it was a three-parter, the last three episodes of that season. Um, so, and then they were like, oh, this is great. And we'll make her daughter. We'll do a spinoff. And like, but it was to try to force that down their throat was so difficult. And the great thing about now is it's an option. They're like, great, you got a serialized show? OK, cool. What is it? You know? So that, to me, it's just about options now. We just, so you don't have to. It's not required. If you want to, you can. So whatever works best for you and like is feels right to you, that's what you can go with, and that's what you can pitch, and you take it to the place that would do that kind of thing. You check yourself. So, so just to caps up, art or not to art for writers in this group? Should we be thinking about uh, that? I just think it's what, whatever you, you feel like is exciting 
to you, in, in, at least an hour long. Whatever is going to keep. Viable business models from the top down. It, it, you can do either one. Okay. You can, that's, I think that's the what's it, great and new. Would you agree that it, do what you, you yeah. elect to do? Yes. But is it fair for me to say with my own prejudice that arcing is harder? Arcing, I think it is. At it, least in comedy it is. I, I, that's, I, that's what I can say. I think it's harder in comedy because I don't have the constraint of having to have to, to, of, of the jokes. And it's, I think it's in the little bit I've done in comedy writing, not, never on a show, just of my own, you know, working on my own. Um, and I'm taking a class at Columbia on it. Um, it. It was hard enough to come up with the jokes, yeah. you know, ba that were that were um, coming out of character, not just a situation, but not just a you know, no, not not like a knock knock joke, like an actual like funny moment that came out of the character's wants and needs, etc. And it actually be funny and land, and you know, um, that's hard enough. So yeah. I I I. I I don't know. How, I mean, I don't do comedy. I do com well. The weird thing is, I do comedy action. So, and I have arcs, but it's not a comedy. I think it's just different. It's just more. It's more contained, right? Yeah. I mean, having to be funny every single week. Yeah. Is is that's hard. And by the way, just so you know, so like on big movies like Transformers and you know anything that has a comedic element to it, or well, there's a lot of different aspects of it but literally what happens is they're bringing the TV model into film which is which is great because you're starting to have these crossovers like with JJ Abrams, Joss Whedon like who go back and forth um, as writer directors and they're bringing that model over so I remember in the uh, Transformers I don't remember it was one or two but there was a, a table read and they hired it was like eight people one was a joke writer one was a specialist in writing female characters well, blah blah blah. Like each person was a specialist, and it was a four-hour table read, and everybody like chimed in with their expertise and said, "Oh, you know, here's a good joke for that moment." Like the ro and not necessarily a line, but like, "Oh, the, the the dog pees on the robot's leg," and and I remember we we were like, I wasn't in the room, but my friends came out afterwards and told me, and they said, "They're like, that's that just seems so stupid. Like, doesn't that seem stupid?" I was like, "Yeah, that just seems stupid. Like, again, random," but but the director loved it. And um, it was, it's in the movie. I think it's the first one. So it's in the movie, and literally we, went, we all went to see it together, and it got the biggest laugh, like the most response in the whole movie was that dog peeing in the damn robot's leg. Like, we're like, okay, that, that comedy writer knew exactly what he was doing. Like, it totally worked. So, but we, none of us, I didn't write the, the script, but we have like a little inner circle of people, and we all read each other's scripts, kind of like in a, like in a, in a writing room. And uh, none of us would have ever thought of to do something like like that. It took like a you know somebody with the expertise of doing comedy to do it, but it took a village of people to make that movie. And it's not the greatest movie in the world. Um, uh, however, it made a massive amount of money, which is why they're doing the fourth one and the fifth one and the twelfth one. <laughs> not not to belabor the issue, but I will say that in the half hour genre, the hardest thing to do and the most valuable contribution writers can make is a story is the story. Uh, the jokes come later, the characters already exist, the story. And it's hard, really hard to think of an excellent new predicament for this central character to be in week after week. And that's why I'm kind of being a little bit neurotic and emphatic about saying I wouldn't do the anthology structure in comedy if I had a choice. So that's just take it or leave it. That's my opinion, but it's harder. 
and I do remember again an anecdote. Um, I you you there there's the best laid plan. What is the joke about? If you want to make the gods laugh, tell them your plans. You can't really know how you're going to get your first job. And mine, I accidentally in the 80s wound up on the Jeffersons. The Jeffersons was dying the death of a dog at that time. It was there was 50 something shows on the air, and it was like 53. And it was on Wednesdays, and it was going to go. And here's Norman Lear's name again. He had such clout and had so many shows on the air. He said, I won't give you any of my other shows if you don't pick the Jeffersons up again. So the CBS had to, and they moved it to Sundays after 60 Minutes. Suddenly, there was five more, seven more seasons, cause, not because it got any better. I like to think it got better when I got there. But, it, but because, <laughs> but because it, it followed something that was a hit. So now, all of a sudden, this moribund family, this imaginary dry cleaner, that already 120-something interesting things happened to him. We had to go five more years. That's 130 more interesting things had to happen to him. And we had to think of that every week. And believe me, <clears throat> and there's one of the writers on our show who went on to produce Cheers, which I mean, he said, this is really hard. He said, this is the 216th interesting thing that happened to this imaginary dry cleaner. He said, in my whole life, only two <laughs> interesting things happened to me. And they were both in high school. <laughs> So, so it's hard to think of stories and predicaments, and so that's why I'm, my position is what it is. Uh, uh, don't do it if you don't have to. But, but hour long is different. Uh, yeah. When you've been talking about television, if if you're a writer that has gotten like a first small opportunity to work on a staff, but you're trying to maintain your momentum. What do you do when you get it? One, if you guys know anything, how do you get into meetings? And, and then when you're in the meetings, what what is helpful to do? Is it just to sit and listen to what they need? Like, it's, it's hard to say. It's not an exact science. Um, I mean, as a beginning person, not in a way that's obvious, but kiss the ass of the producer. <laughs> but not an obvious No. But I mean, don't go in there being word proud yeah. and saying, but that's tricky too because you don't want to be a complete and utter yes man. You don't, you don't want to be a doormat. You want to stand yeah. for something. But let's say, I don't know how you got in there, but let's say the way that it works is the Writers Guild mandates that a certain number, I don't know, are the, are the series still 22 episodes? 22? Uh, yeah, I mean a standard. And a certain yeah. percentage, they don't have to hire a freelance writer. There's no minimum number of writers that they have to hire. But there is a minimum number that they have to see. Yeah, two. It's only two? They, ha they have to... The, the, I'm not sure if it's different for, for half hours, but an hour long, they have to hire, They have to pay two freelancers. Have to pay them. They have to pay. They have to hire them to write the script. They don't have to shoot that script, but they have to buy the script. So somehow you yeah. got in. You got in, and you're pitching your idea. I think for the most part, I don't know how you guys do it. The executive producer is always too vainglorious, and he won't even sit with the freelance writers. He gives it to one of his producers or even a story <laughs> editor, and they hear the pitch. You come in with three to five ideas that. Ideally, they have a, it's not a big long pitch, you, but two or three minutes. You don't want to bore them. You just say, this happens, and then here's the complication, and then here's the resolution. And then I have another one, and then they'll say, oh, we did that already. And then the next one, well, I don't believe our character do that. And then the third one, oh, that's interesting. We'll get back to you. So then they go tell the executive producer, and then he'll either say, oh, that's interesting. Let's do it. Did you like the guy? Call him back. Um, um, but, so that's kind of how it works. 
I don't know how you got into that meeting, but you got into that meeting through an agent, through somebody that you know on the show, through you slept with somebody. I don't know. But you got in there. So when you are making that presentation, you want to be, you know, sharp, and you want to be cooperative, and you want to have a couple laugh lines in there, pretend like that they're ad-libs, pretend like you just made them up, and you rehearsed them all night last night in front of the mirror, and you know that they're funny, and you tried them on you. Seriously. And you want them to think that you're smart, that you're hardworking, that you're funny, and that you're flexible. You cannot go in there at the beginning and be, like I said, word proud or idea proud. And if they change it completely, think of ways that you can say, yeah, okay, that might be tough, but I think I can do it. And then go later, pull out your hair and say, how do I get that character to do that? But um, so, so it's the sales, it's selling. That's another thing. I didn't know that producers had to talk to directors. I didn't know producers had to do casting. I didn't know. I also didn't know. Again, I thought writing was writing in a room. More of the talent that you need is pitching. Pitching is even more valuable to your career. I hate to say it, because I, I am true. a purist. About as long as you have something that's good enough. Like, if you could be the best pitcher in the world, if the script doesn't do it, yeah. they're not reading your next one. You're right? not going to come back. Yeah. But what I was going to say about that is it's sales, right? Yeah. It's sales to a network, to an individual. And sales, somebody told me this once, is consists of only one thing. Getting people to like you. So obviously you're going to have problems. <laughs> <laughs> he actually was practicing that all last night. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, 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 you know, whatever you would do, like, I don't know, you know, to get to, to, you have to make them think, you know, I'm a hard worker, I'm smart, I'm cooperative, I'm easy to get along with. And I go back to that don't be an asshole thing again because yeah. nobody wants to be... You're in that room sometimes, like I said, 14, 16, 18 hours a day with the same people every day. You don't, you don't want a jerk in there. You want people that you can get along with and you know that if I'm in trouble, I have a bad day, that guy will help me. I actually, I literally was just uh, a few weeks ago in L.A. I had a meeting at Bad Rubble, which is J.J. Abrams' company, and I was talking to a producer I've known for a long time, and he said, uh, we were talking about getting on staff of shows for some reason. And uh, he... Well, this he, is the time of the year. Well, the, yeah, well, it was about a show that I might be on. I will, anyway, uh, but I didn't want to talk about that too much. Um, but we were talking about, you know, how you get on the staff of a show, and they do, they've done a million shows, and he said, yeah, it's like we're always looking for the person we can be in the war room with at 4 a.m. We want that person. That's who we're looking for. That's it. Whatever it is that you're bringing, we don't care. Like you were saying, like there's somebody you can, you, you, the, the stand-ups who can only tell jokes, but sometimes that's exactly what you need at 4 a.m., so great, so I can go home yeah. and we can have a good show, you know, the best version of the show we can make. So whatever it is you bring, bring it, you know, whatever you think you're most talented at, I would like try to highlight that. So they're like, oh, yeah, we need the, you know, yeah, he knows that. I met the guy today and he can do, like he's great with structure or he's great with cool action sequences if that's the kind of show they do or whatever it is. In terms of getting in the room, like there's a, uh, my quick few ways are well, one, it could be anything. Two, uh, one of the standard, more standard ways is to be a writer's assistant or, uh, you know, a, a writer or a. a oh, no, I was actually going to say script coordinator, oh, yeah. but I would never want to be a script coordinator because it's such a pain in the ass job. Cocaine so, salesman. Cocaine salesman. Literally, we had a guy on staff. That's what his job was: was to get drugs for the executive producer. That's, that's I don't literally. Think he's no, I'm totally serious. I'm totally serious. And um, and and it's not it's not any of the, but anybody I've mentioned. So I like the producer in question. It's not anybody I mentioned. Um, seriously. And, I don't think it's um, and it's not. It's definitely okay. Well, 
No, um, and, but the way, the way, so here, and to show you how crazy it is, the way that I got my first chance to write was by just breaking the law, um, which was figuring out how to sneak onto the lot at Universal, and, which is through the credit union on Lancashire, and you go up to the roof, and you go across this skywalk, and no you, kidding. yeah, and you come, you, you know what that main game, and then you, you come, there's a, it was a fire code that that's changed since then. There's a, there was a fire code that you had to keep the fire doors open, so you go, you walk across this walkway, and it cr crosses over the gate. And so suddenly you are now in, on this other building, you go in through the fire door that has to be unlocked, oh, and you get in the elevator, and you come down, and you stand, and you come out by the commissary. And like suddenly you are now on the lot of Universal. And, was that before 9-11? Exactly. That's a, it, you can't do that now. So this was 1997. Um, so I got to, so really quickly, I, I got to know a bunch of people just by, you know, saying hello and whatever and, you know, making oh, up reasons two or three times a week. Okay. And, I love and, this story. Actually, I didn't go to the concert. I tried to go to the production offices because I wanted to be, because the writers usually brought their food or lunch in. So I, so I wound up, kept going one production company. I love Sam Raimi. I was a big Sam Raimi fan, so I figured out which one this building this is. This is the most useful thing that we've said all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I literally, I'm going over there, I'm going over there. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm supposed to read uh, this script. They're like, oh, okay. Um, this files are there. So I would go and be like, oh yeah, I'm reading another script. They're like, oh yeah, okay, cool. And I, you know, they knew me, like maybe my, my first name, or they didn't even know what my name was at all. I don't know. But they, they knew my face, and they, were like, they weren't afraid. So one day I go in and they're having a little party and, and this guy comes out and he's like, you want some cake? And I was like, sure, that'd be great. And I, I was like, what's the cake? Is it somebody's birthday? He's like, no, 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 actually, I, I just, uh, I'm leaving. I, I'm going off to do this new cable network and et cetera. And I was like, oh, fantastic. That's great. You know, congratulations. I said, do you have, do you find somebody to fill your position? And he said, oh, no, I got I got I'm going to try to help the studio figure out, you know, how to replace me. And I was like, oh, because I was actually thinking I would be a good candidate for your job. He said, really? <laughs> That's great. When you, and this is how long ago it was. Like, can you fax me your resume when you get home? And I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. And I, and, and, uh, I was like, and should I send it to you directly or who should I put? Because I didn't know what his name was. He's like, uh, oh, yeah, he said, my name is Brad and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, awesome. I'll, yeah, I'll do that. Cool. And I go home and I call another friend of mine who has, was now working at Universal. And I'm like, hey, you know, do you know this guy Brad? I tell him the name. He's like, yeah, I know who that is. I'm like, what's his... What's his title? Like, what's he do? He's like, he's head of marketing. I was like, oh shit. So I go and I, I write up this fake resume, um, trying to put in as much of like marketing, merchandising, publicity, promotions, anything you could think of that I ever did my entire life before this point. What and percentage was true? Uh, about 25, <laughs> I would say. I mean, I had my like schooling in there, but I went, you know, for, I didn't go, for, I actually went for economics. Yeah. So I was like, uh, you know, marketing and economic, you know. Um, uh, and so I basically, I faxed it over. I'm like, this is not going to work at all. And the guy calls me. He's like, hey, well, Brad calls me. He has me come in. And I was like, okay. So it, I happened to, I, I, I was a big fan of Hercules and Xena because it was Sam's, again, Sam's show. And so, and that was their biggest, the show that they were making the most money on from ancillary products. So all the merchandise. So every single question he asked me was about the show. He did not never asked me one question about marketing or publicity or promotion or anything. He just said uh, he would ask me questions like, "What would Zena do in this situation?" 
And um, did you so see this, this episode? For, this was not your larceny. This was good fortune. Th then it, it was good. For, it, this became good fortune. See, you make your own good so, fortune. So I happened to have read. I had to. I had these. I was reading all the scripts. Oh. So I, I knew every episode. Oh, yeah. oh, so, so, so then I went to the the executive producer. He oh, he asked me the same questions, and then I went to the president of the studio, and he asked me the same freaking questions. And no one asked me anything about marketing. And then I had to. This is a totally long story. I should do a show about it. But, um, but I literally, and it would be serialized, and I know how it ends. Um, but then, then I, I, get, I can't believe, I come home for, for the holidays, and I'm like, I'm never getting this job. I just know, and they literally call, like, and they're like, can you start the day you get back? And I was like, OK. Shit, I don't know how to do this job. Like, they're going to figure it out. So I get That's back, awesome. and I start going in. I go in at 7 a.m. every day, which, and it's LA, so 7 a.m. You know. Like the, literally, the, yeah. The executive producer comes to me and is like, "Will you please stop coming in at 7 a.m.? You're making us all look bad." Uh, and I was think, like, I'm thinking like, I have to come in at 7 a.m. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, and I would call the New York office because we had there was an office here from Universal and be like, "Hey, how's it going? I'm the new. I'm just trying to catch up on what you're doing. You know, like what's going on with this and that." And I basically just learned how to do the job. Brilliant. And. And I and I got and I used that to talk to all the writers and like become friends with them and know them. And they would not let me write an episode. Never. Three years that went by. Directed like marketing for three guy. years. Yeah. Like, no. They were like, no. We have a we have a policy. I was like, why didn't I know this? Like, we have a policy. We're in another position. You cannot become a writer. And I was like, oh my. That comes from Sam. Like that's Sam's thing. I was like, oh my god. You gotta be okay. So I was like, well, I quit. And then I was like, oh, well, there's no reason for me to keep doing this. So I faxed my resume, my resignation letter in to New Zealand, which is where they were shooting the show. And uh, I left and uh, for the weekend. And they, they're basically a day ahead. Um, so they call my apartment on Sunday. And they get my roommate. And it's the, it's the vice president of the production company. And she says, oh, I need to talk to George, like, the, you know, the studio, the president of the studio called, and I have to talk to him. And my roommate's like, oh, he's at Disneyland, which was true. And she was like, oh, my God, like, he's celebrating at Disneyland. Like, and the, producer, the president had told her to get me back. So, because they didn't know what the hell was going on. So, I literally come back, and I had given him a month's notice. This is the end of the story. And I, the executive, so Rob's partner, I mean, Sam's partner, whose name is Rob Tappert, comes to me and says, well, look, the president of the studio and the president of television both came to me and they said, I have to keep you. Like, I have to get you to stay here as director of marketing somehow because apparently you know everything about what's going on and they don't know anything. Um, so uh, I'll give you, how much more money do you want? I was like, no, I don't, I don't want money. And they're like, oh, okay, vacation time. We get it. Vacation time. We'll give you it. No, no, I don't want vacation time. Like, I want to be a writer. And like, no, there's a policy. No and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go off and, and be a, then I'm going to, I'll find work somewhere else as a writer. And um, he said, okay, okay, okay. You, we'll let you write one episode, one episode of television, and that's it. And you have to stay for at least one year of director marketing. I said, okay. He's like, and it's going to be, I'll go to the executive producer of Xena and, and ask him. And I didn't really know him that well, the executive producer of Xena. I knew the executive producers, the showrunners of Hercules really well because I had to become friendly with them. So he's like, I, I said, oh, I, you know, Xena's not really my thing. I think I'm better at Hercules. And he said, all right, fine, but I still have to ask them. I said, okay, that's fair. He's like, but all I'm, I'm going to ask, if they say no, you still have to stay for a year. I said, okay. So he's like, all right. And he was mad. 
about this. So he goes walking out the main stairwell, and I run out of my office, go down the outside stairwell, and run into their office. I'm like, guys, Rob's coming down. He's going to ask if I can write for the show. Is that okay with you? They're like, yeah, it's all right, fine. Go, okay, good. I run back upstairs before, and then I got to write one episode. And then literally the month, a month later, Rob came back to me and said, do you want to write another one? <laughs> And that was, and that was yeah, exactly. so, so, so just do that. Just, just do that. No, I mean, the point is, do whatever it takes, like, just to get there in the space where they need you for any reason, you can parlay that into something else. Am I the only one so. He should script that. That's, that's <laughs> just, This is actually exactly how he got hired by the studio. But and I did the same with it. It keeps working. I don't know why. Yeah. Think about the part where you sacrificed the version. Well, I didn't, I didn't want to get too bloody. Well, we can sacrifice a few versions at the pub. But I want to now thank you for coming. It's the end of our time. Thank these three gentlemen. It's been amazing. I've learned a lot. So please, give it up for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank you